0: I'm certainly enjoying preaching this series through the Gospel of Mark Things certainly clip along with Mark You're not left wondering He moves from one thing to another And uh, we started of course in Mark chapter 1 Verse 1 And all the time in Mark's Gospel he's asking us Who is Jesus? And that very first verse he kind of summarises it In a very compact form of who Jesus is He's the new beginning He's the good news. He's Jesus, which is Greek for God saves. He is Christ, which is Greek for the anointed. And he is the son of God. And all the rest of the gospel is actually just filling this out and showing us how marvellous Jesus is. And it ends up at the cross and our salvation where we see Christ as the crucified king, son of God, the anointed. And so we pick up the story today with the baptism of Jesus. Verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Now unlike Matthew and Luke, who give a very full account of Jesus' birth, Mark has us meet Jesus as an adult. There's no background apart from his hometown and immediately Jesus gets dunked in the Jordan River. And we ask, well, why does Jesus need to be baptised? For earlier in Mark, and certainly emphasised in the other Gospels, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. And we know that Christ never sinned and never needed to repent. Uh, Now, I covered this in more depth at Phoebe's baptism last month. If you remember, we had the the font, the tub set up here and it was a wonderful time and she was baptised and we talked about that and there's a number of reasons why Jesus was baptised certainly not because he needed to repent one of the key reasons was that it was a sign that he would take our sins on and that they would be washed away not by the Jordan River but by the blood of his sacrifice And baptism is also a witness. Whenever someone is baptised, it's a clear witness to believers and non-believers that the one that is in the water and comes out is loved, accepted and forgiven by the living God. And so what's the witness that is happening here with Jesus' baptism? And so we see that again in um, verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. As Jesus was coming up out of the water he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Now we're so familiar with this passage that we're not surprised, amazed and in awe as the original readers would be. But we should. For the veil between heaven and earth is torn, ripped apart, as the kingdom of God breaks through. And even as the barrier between eternity and the temporal splits apart, the Holy Spirit descends gently in the form of a dove. And as the Holy Spirit alights upon Jesus, a voice from heaven thunders, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And there's certainly a witness going on here, isn't it? It's not just Jesus saying he's the Son of God but the Father and the Holy Spirit. Who is Jesus? Here in the most graphical way, pictorial way, Mark is reminding us that Jesus is the Son of God, Son with a capital S in bold and underlined and not only that, he's anointed. Not anointed with oil. See in those days the high priest, the king, they were anointed to the office with oil. But Jesus, the true and the better king, the true and the better high priest, is anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. We remember that the word Christ is literally anointed. Jesus is the Son of God because the Heavenly Father declares it and he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And again, this is where the world of art can help us linger in this imagery. The painting that, uh, that you see on the screen and is on the front cover of your newsletter is by a New Zealand artist, Keys Brunn, born in Roxborough. So I expect someone to be able to make some connections. I challenge the early service. I'll be very disappointed if someone doesn't say, oh, I know who that is or related to. Spent most of his life in Sumner Uh, in Christchurch and he painted this picture the setting is the Puna Kaiki bush on the west coast virgin native bush lines the left side of a braided river upstream the river opens up into a valley with what can we see at the top of the valley Mount Cook is there John the Baptist has his camel hair robe and leather belt as we expect and Jesus has a loincloth and all this is to give the painting a historical setting John the Baptist's arms are outstretched, and he's looking up, and the eyes sort of roll back in his head and with amazement. And Jesus also stands, and the water's dripping from his body, and they're both looking up to that great rend in the sky. Because the top right of the painting, that deep southern blue sky, and you don't get it bluer than that, do you? Not down this way. It's just lovely. That deep blue southern sky is ripped open. In the top right hand corner, you can just make out a supernova at the very edge of the universe and then gently with outstretched wings the dove glides down upon Jesus. The artist was interviewed about this painting and he said that he decided on the final composition after a day in prayer. He'd had had another painting and he'd painted a few years before and it wasn't just quite right, he was commissioned to do this and you know he you know he just wanted he wanted to get it right. And after some time in prayer, that's what he decided on. And he said in the interview that he was trying to capture that moment when Jesus came out of the water. And I think he's done a wonderful job. And the power of art is the invitation to linger in the moment and to let our gaze rest upon the different elements so thoughtfully, creatively, and in this case, prayerfully created. However, though this paint on canvas captures much of the pathos, the heart of what's happening, it can't possibly capture the very voice of God. You are my son whom I love. With you I am pleased. And so Jesus is baptised. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. And God himself declares he is my son whom I dearly love. And as Jesus stands in the water, still dripping, and the echo of his Father's words falls silent, what are we to make of this, of the baptism? You know, as we marvel at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's all three together honouring the Son. And that's the clue. For here in the Jordan, we see the Trinity. We see the holy triad, the three in one. And, you know, we need to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. If we don't get it right, our relationship with God fades to the merest shadow and we end up living just a half-hearted, insipid Christian life. But if we can understand, capture the relationship that is between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, Christ will dawn afresh in your lives in a very vibrant and vital way. Now some people fuss over the word Trinity. Some Christians tell us that because the Bible doesn't have the word Trinity in it, we shouldn't bother about it. It was just made up. Other Christians think that Trinity is far too hard to understand and why complicate our Christian walk Other Christians think it's only gobbledygook for theologians and academics to argue over, to write theses about and be published and look important. Outside the church, the Jews and the Muslims shun us over the Trinity. When we talk about the Trinity, they say, you worship multiple gods. We don't want to know. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, they believe the Trinity is our greatest weakness. So if they come knocking on the door and you're chatting and they find out you're a Christian they quickly stare to the Trinity and just say it's ridiculous. You guys are worshipping multiple gods. Yet, surely what is at stake is not whether the idea of the Trinity is convenient or popular but is it true? And if the idea of the Trinity is true it has a tremendous impact on our faith. So as always let scripture be our guide and so we go back to Mark chapter 1 verse 3 where the Bible clearly alters an Old Testament verse and we looked at this a week or two ago but just to refresh the original verse in Mark chapter 1 verse 3 has God has Yahweh as the subject but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Mark changes the quote so Jesus becomes the subject and the verse in Mark 1.3, referring to John the Baptist, says he will prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for God. So that's what the Isaiah passage says. But in Mark we read, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, for Jesus. And so by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark is saying, Jesus is God now here's some very good advice never build a major doctrine on just one verse okay you know that obscure verse in Corinthians um, chapter 15 about baptising the dead you know one verse <laughs> and so we parked that, I'm not quite sure whereas of course the Jehovah's Witnesses have picked that up, made it a major doctrine um, um, baptism and, and all their geological records are about baptising dead people. So we never make up a major doctrine on one verse. And if this is the only time, the only hint in the Bible that Jesus was God then we would park it. But there are more verses and so we cannot ignore the divinity of Christ. Two more verses. First of all John chapter 1 verse 1 in typical John's style, he refers to Jesus as the Word and he writes, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. What he's saying was in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. John does this in the very first verse. Mark waits to verse 3 for he tells us, that Jesus is God. Now I didn't make this up. Theologians didn't make this up. This is the word of God that we sit under. One more verse. And it's the ascension of Jesus at the very end of Luke, Luke 24, verse 51. Jesus has been resurrected and for a period of time he's been appearing to the disciples and then for the last time We read in verse 51 of Luke 24 While Jesus was blessing them he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then verse 52 Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Again, it's startling. The disciples are worshipping Jesus. How dare they? In the Old Testament it is crystal clear that we are to worship God and God alone. The first two of the Ten Commandments you shall have no other God you shall have no idols and worship them. And do you know what the punishment of worshipping gods was in the Old Testament? It was death, stoning. Like I said, this is why the Jewish and the Muslims folk reject Christianity on this as well as other reasons. Yet here are the disciples worshipping Jesus. And that was not the first time. There were other times as well. And Jesus didn't say, oh no, no, you've got it wrong, please don't worship me. He accepted it because it was right. He is the Son of God. And so, the early church wrestled with the relationship between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit for some 300 years. So if you haven't quite got it sorted in 20 minutes, give yourself some time. 300 years. Until they accepted on the now widely accepted view of the Trinity. Putting it simply, We declare that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Putting it another way, God is one in essence and three in person. And this is the mystery of the Trinity and it's a mystery to be enjoyed. Now why do I say this? Well, most of you, I can imagine, are sitting there thinking, oh, all this doctrine makes my head hurt. And you'd be right, <laughs> for most of us. Now, God has wired some wonderful people to really thrive on this stuff, and they love it. And when those people have a heart for Jesus, they are a real blessing to the church. But most of us are not like that. When I was studying at Knox, one of the students had that symbol of the Trinity tattooed onto his chest. There we go. So if you ever see a Presbyterian minister with his shirt off, not a pretty sight, and it happens to be the symbol of the Trinity, there you'll know who I'm talking about. Now he's a bit keen. <laughs> Too keen for me. But I just want to emphasise that it is a blessing to have those people who do really wrestle with that and really help the church think those through, but that's not the most of us. Most of us, the Trinity is a blessing to be enjoyed. Let's explore that for a little bit. As Jesus rose from the water, I imagine a great delight amongst the members of the Trinity. I mean, this was it. This was the rescue mission. It had begun, and soon the kingdom of God would be breaking through into people's lives and be established amongst the nations. And I emphasize the word delight, for there is a warmth and a delight, a sense of fun and pleasure between, amongst, and within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you are invited to the party. So let me explain. I have three chairs here. Three empty chairs in a circle. And if you were sitting on these chairs, you could reach out and touch the other person's shoulder. Now imagine the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are sitting on these three chairs. And it's before creation. So there's not a single atom invented. Time had not been invented. There was no clock ticking away in the background. Space had not been invented. But the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are sitting here in the chair. And they are in communion, in fellowship, in friendship. And there is delight and warmth and laughter. And they have no need. They have no need for anything no need for food or or space they have no need for other people or, or, or gods or anything they are at union, they are at one and all is right and because God is God one day he made room and he pulled up an empty chair and you were invited to that empty chair And Adam was invited. I love that passage in, in Genesis where it says that in the cool of the evening, Adam and his heavenly father walked and enjoyed the garden. Because Adam and Eve were invited to the empty chair. But then Adam screwed up. And Jesus said, I'll sort it. And he did. And he came down as a baby, human and vulnerable, into the world to invite you to the empty chair of the Trinity. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. Though Jesus came to that which was his own, his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. I thought it was just Jesus who was the son of God. But to all who receive him, to believe in him, we become sons and daughters of God. It's what the Bible says. You and I, when we believe in Christ, when we receive him, we are made children of God and we are invited into the empty chair. Not as slaves, servants or hirelings to sit at a tyrant's feet, but sons and daughters to sit in the royal chair. I mean, this is the mystery of the Trinity. A mystery not to be solved, but to be enjoyed, to participate in. I want to finish now with a last look of Keith Baroon's painting. We see both John and Jesus side by side, standing in the river, looking up as the Holy Spirit descends. But notice John's arms, outstretched and open. When the artist was asked In an interview, what his personal spiritual meaning that he took out of his work, he replied, John the Baptist is reaching out, trying to draw the spectator in, and it's an appeal to observe, to listen, and follow the one being baptised. And this is the invitation of John the Baptist to you and I today. The invitation to believe in Christ, to become God's child, and take our seat in the mystery and the joy of the Trinity Father, Son and Holy Spirit Let's pray